There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, getting out of the monopoly rut that I am apparently in. One listener says I need to be put right on my thinking of monopolies after I said they were holding Australia back because the size of the population meant there just wasn't enough competition for the economy to work properly. And uh, as a result of that, I said Australians were paying too much for stuff. Well, I need to change my thinking. So let's do that today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. All right. Now, Steve, uh, you need to help me, apparently, get out of a rut on monopolies. So Peter Y, uh, just a letter Y, not sure what that stands for, says, I'm obsessed with competition. Uh, now, look, I think this stems from we did a piece uh, a little while back on when it, you know I asked the question, was Australia too small to succeed because there wasn't enough of a population to support competition? So mm-hmm. my argument was, doesn't that push up supermarket prices? Isn't that why Australia's got very expensive telecommunications charges? In lots of ways, there's a lack of competition meaning uh, Australians have to have to pay more. But he says his point is, as per your book, perfect competition and monopolies will reach the same price because they actually see the same demand curve. He says, why not explain that to him so he gets out of that rut in his thinking? <laughs> so, now, look, I sort of get this. So if you've got a new competitor, tell me if, I, if this is the thing. If, if, I've, if a new competitor comes on the scene, uh, it doesn't necessarily add to demand because others might reduce their output so the market demand remains unchanged ultimately is that the argument because i can't see i can't see that happening that way peter why you have to correct him here <laughs> no mate that's not the argument at all right okay uh, good. Like peter gives a good uh, as he said the as per my arguments in debunking economics and uh just to give a bit of background on that when i wrote the book or decided to write the book my intention was to make accessible all the existing critiques of mainstream economics uh, that I was aware of. The only critique I was going to add with my own uh, was the extra critique of Marx's labor theory of value uh, because I knew that people would, uh, you know, say he's just another bloody Marxist lefty criticizing sensible capitalist economics or you know, put this in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, my, my contribution was a critique of Marx's theory of value. Uh, which, of course, none of those twerps who criticised the book ever actually read, and they actually still describe me as that Marxist. Right. So, you know, you, you can't win. However, uh, when writing it, um, a bit of a history. I had a um, – uh, when I started doing my master's degree at, uh, at New South Wales University, as a prelude to getting my PhD and becoming an academic, uh, I had a lovely man who completely misunderstood my approach to economics, who insisted on being my supervisor, uh, which led to my first draft of my thesis being failed. Uh, in the, in the, this is a bit of a long personal story. In the um, aftermath of that, I simply realised that it, by trying to satisfy my well-meaning but uh, non-comprehending, fundamentally new Keynesian supervisor, uh, I'd written something which 
he was trying to appeal to his particular you know, microcosm of uh, then microcosm of neoclassical economics when I wasn't interested in that at all. And then by, by luck, a guy who had been, been ret- uh, forcibly retired temporarily uh, from the university because he had a problem with alcohol. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Jeff will mind me saying this because he's a proud non-alcoholic these days. Yeah, it was just too bloody expensive, was it, for, for somebody? Yeah, expensive. Like, it cost yeah. you damn much in yeah. Australia. Yeah, that, mm. that buying a beer. Anyway, he, uh, he came back and I was actually advised by the head of school and a lovely man called Greg McColl, who was a true, a true humanist back in the days when humanists ran economic departments rather than neoclassicals. Greg asked me to be Jeff's uh, fine tutor just to sort of ease him out of the department. Well, Jeff, Jeff Fishman had no intention of being eased out of anywhere. Uh, he was a, he is a, a very uh, innovative thinker in his own right. And uh, he completely, he did the classic thing one has to do, having had an alcohol problem, you never touch it again. Uh, and he's, he stuck to that religiously for the last 30 years. And uh, he gave a brilliant series of lectures in a course, I think it was called Managerial Economics, something of that nature. Uh, and I was asked to be his tutor. And he, he, I just thought this guy intellectually will get me, and that's indeed what happened. He successfully let me do a master's just on my own topic, which was the critique of Marx's labor theory of value. And then when I did my PhD on Minsky, he was also he just basically gave me my head to do my thing. Uh, and of course, both of them, both of them, very highly successful. Now, uh, Jeff, in one lecture, gave a talk about what he called conjectural variation. And this was the argument that if you look at how the neoclassicals explain what they call perfect competition, they argue that individual firms are so small uh, that whatever they do doesn't affect the market, uh, the market price. So they, they, every unit they sell will sell at a fixed price, which is the market price. You draw, the, draw your big demand and supply curves, mm. uh, get the intersection point, draw a dotted line across to an individual firm, That's that horizontal line is the actual price they'll sell. Every If they sell one unit, they'll sell it for that price. If they sell a million units, they'll sell it for that price. Right. And if they move from that price, they won't sell any at all. Exactly. You have the total, totally disappearing demand, yeah? And, uh, and, and, and then what, the, what Jeff showed uh, in, that, in this argument was that if you think about what it means that the um, – the market that the individual firm perceives, it conjectures that a change in the output of another firm will have no impact upon it. So the conjectural variation had to be zero. But he showed that the only way that the thing would actually work was if the conjectural variation for both firms was minus one. So effectively, if they increased their output by one, they expected another firm to reduce to, to yeah. reduce the output by the same amount and bull no change in the market price. Logical contradiction. Yeah. That was sitting in the back of my mind from some time in the early 90s. Well, I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Because they're going to produce, they've got machines producing stuff at whatever, you know, hopefully close to full capacity. They're not going to, uh, if they if they were to cut uh, demand because they're thinking, uh, cut production because they don't think there's enough demand because there's more companies on the scene, then their cost of production is going to go up because they're well, going to have fact, all that the, spare the, capacity. The, the, actual logical, uh, the, the, the actual logical problem is the whole idea that you want to combine a downward sloping market demand curve, which means if, every additional unit put onto the market necessarily reduces the market price. Mm. Okay? That's your downward sloping market demand curve. But here they had the idea the individual firms, every extra unit they produce changes market price, not one result. 
change is zero. So you had the either the rate, change of market price with respect to output of a single firm was zero, while the change of market price with respect to the total output of the market was negative. Now, they are two logically impossible situations, but of course, neoclassical economists are a bit like, what's, what's the classic book in Alice, I think it's Alice in Wonderland, hold, uh, do, do three impossible things before breakfast. They can hold three contradictory thoughts before they wake up. <laughs> um, so, and of course, they, they, they basically remain asleep and live in a dream world called neoclassical economics, but let's not go completely down that rabbit hole. But this particular rabbit hole sitting in my head, and then when it came to explaining the theory of the firm, again, where I thought I was just going to be repeating existing critiques, I started explaining the model of perfect competition. And as part of that, I graphed the, the, the function for total revenue uh, for a, a market, total revenue for an individual firm, uh, and aggregating the neoclassical vision of the amount that was profit maximizing for all those individual firms that they all produced at the profit maximizing price according to the um, theory. That was where marginal cost uh, was equivalent to market price. And I did the same thing for a monopoly, presuming it had the same cost structure and faced the same, of course, faced the same market demand curve. And I found when I looked at the profit point that the, the, the monopoly was indeed producing at the point where profit was maximized, whereas the competitive firms were producing in the aggregate past the point where profit was maximized. And I thought, hang on a second, how is it possible to be following what's called a profit maximizing rule uh, and and producing more in the aggregate than the profit maximizing amount. So the first stage that I went through in, in writing this critique was to realize that uh, it's simply wrong to say that the rate of change of the market price with respect to the output of a single firm is zero, unless you assume that firms are strategically reacting to each other. So if you have mm. firms, and that's what's called game theory now. Yeah, which, of course, happens. So let me give you a No, 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 don't get doesn't, it. All right, okay. Well, I was going to give you an example of how I think it does happen, but okay. Take you through the whole thing. So yeah, yeah. You jump to, jump to point there. And that's what the neoclassicals do, by the way. They jump from my point to the point you're about to go into, <laughs> which is that firms do strategically interact. However, the version, the, the, the version in the textbook Used, used to be explicit about that. They used to call this the assumption of atomism. And that was that each individual firm is so small that it behaves like an atom, not knowing the existence of other atoms. So it doesn't strategically react, interact at all with the other firms in the industry. And that's what we used to be taught in the textbooks. Now, that, I mean, I'll go back to this. I mean, you can interrupt me a few more times now if you like. Uh, that, that is what led to the theory of perfect competition being fallacious. At the same time, the Corno argument, which, which is that firms strategically interact with each other, when you apply that, you don't get a mathematical contradiction. So if, if you presume that uh, if one firm knows another firm, uh, that if, if say there's a profit maximizing point uh, which involves collusion between the firms, mm. uh, and if both firms do it, then if they get a aggregate high, higher profit than they would if they didn't collude. Uh, if they both defect, they get the lower profit that comes from perfect competition. But if one defects, they get a higher profit, the other gets a lower profit. So you get what's called a, 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 a Corno equilibrium or a Nash equilibrium, where it's best for them to, uh, to not collude. 
strangely enough, um, to, to, to the, they fall into a situation which gives you a higher output and a lower price, but also a lower profit. Now, this was uh, this is the beginning of a, a deep, deep rabbit hole for me. Uh, it really was Alice through the through the looking glass, because when I then found myself being told, "Is you're Siri keen? You don't understand calculus. Uh, profit is the gap between total revenue and total costs, and profits are maximised." Uh, where the rate of change of total revenue is the same as the rate of change of total cost. And the analogy there, imagine you've got, uh, you're going to try to walk to a, this, you know the old story, you take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll get there before you? Mm-hmm. You know the old saying? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not uh, feeling like I can say anything now. I'm just, I'm just, like, I'm just not feeling like I can say anything. So I'm just letting you carry on. <laughs> I'm being very, unusually quiet. So yes, know, take the high road, low road. We've got it. Carry okay, on. Okay. If if the person, if the high road is like a hill that you know is just like a, 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 a um, upside down parabola, and the low road is like a sort of normal parabola then the point, the gap between the two of them will be the biggest when the slope, the diminishing upward slope is the same as the rising downward slope. The diminishing slope of the, of the high road is the same as the rising, mm-hmm. the slope of, the, of the, the low road. That's where the gap between the two is highest. That's what's supposed to be profit maximizing point. So they say, you know, marginal revenue because marginal cost maximizes profits uh, and that's what you don't understand. And what you also don't understand is that competitive interactions, which the book textbooks do not include in the undergraduate courses, but the, the master's courses do, that strategic interaction leads to this trade-off point being the best point. And that's where uh, you get each individual firm sets marginal cost equal to marginal revenue. Uh, the more firms you add to the industry, the more marginal revenue will approach price in the limit when there's a large number of firms in the industry marginal revenue will be equivalent to price and therefore competitive markets will set output where price, uh, marginal cost in the aggregate equals marginal revenue in the aggregate. So, sorry, and you, you get the interaction of the supply and the demand curve with the point where competitive firms produce, whereas a monopoly that doesn't face these, these, uh, these competitive pressures will produce a lower output at a higher price. And that's the fundamental basis of the neoclassical critique of competition monopoly, and it is completely bollocks. Right. So let me give you a, a, a real-life ex- – well, this isn't a real-life example because I don't want to get sued. Here's a hypothetical example, and you tell me uh, how this applies to what you've just said. So imagine you – imagine I was at a cocktail party in the 1990s, and I was the only person in a group of people who wasn't an airline person, and all the airline people were talking about their first to Europe next year and uh, what date they were going to launch them on and what price they were going to launch. So they all miraculously came in around the same price. So why were they doing themselves a disservice by colluding? They weren't. The whole um, neoclassical theory of competition tried to reduce uh, the, the justified critiques one can make of monopolies that led to the antitrust laws back in America in the 1800s, just to this idea that competitive firms produce more output at a lower price while still profit maximising, while monopolies produce uh, a higher price and lower output while also profit maximising. And it is simply a logical error. Uh, if, you, if you look at uh, the mathematics of 
what I call the, the theory of small firms that do not interact with each other. So they are not strategically trying to react to each other. In that situation, uh, applying the rule of the profit maximizing behavior as the way the firms behave, then a whole bunch of perfectly competitive firms will produce precisely the same amount at, at precisely the same price as a monopoly. But that doesn't work in reality, does it? Because someone will say, no, we want to grab market share. So we're going to, uh, for, an in, for an individual company, when you take into account economies of scale, if you've got a large player and they say, well, we're going to undercut everyone because we can afford to undercut everybody, we might not be maximizing the margin per unit sold, but our EBIT overall is going to be greater if we go for greater market share and undercut everyone else. And, and isn't, that just, what happen, isn't that what and happens in reality? Yeah, and you've just done what often happens with neoclassical economics. Well, no, I'm saying what actually happens in, in, the, in the business world. I no, know, no, no, I, no, I, no, I don't know because I've sort of, sort of done it. I uh, know, mate, and you're right. Yeah. Okay, but what I'm saying is that real-world situation is used to justify a fallacious theory. Mm. And like the classic instance I had of that was actually I was on, on a panel with Deirdre McCloskey, who is a sort of progressive neoclassical economist. Uh, and and I mentioned the what's called the sonnenschein mantel de theorem that proves that – if you take a whole bunch of individual consumers who each obey what the neoclassicals call the law of demand, which means that their demand for a, a commodity uh, necessarily falls if the price rises once you do what's called Hicksian compensation, uh, if, if you if you have that, the so each individual consumer, you can derive a downward sloping individual demand curve. When you add up the aggregate, for technical reasons we can discuss in another podcast, uh, you get a demand curve that follows any shape at all that you can draw um, by basically putting a finger on the page and uh, and drawing a continuous line and not intersecting that line at any any point. Um, that can be the shape of the market demand curve, theoretically. Mm. Now, when I said this, Deidre says, oh, yes, Steve. I've got to try to imitate her voice. Oh, yes, Steve, but it did you... It, you certainly, uh, you're not saying that market demand curves slope any which way, are you? And I was a bit flummoxed because I just don't expect the stupid stuff that neoclassicals will say to defend themselves in public as, as much as I should. Uh, because, yeah, okay, if you actually derived a market demand, if you actually did empirical research on the relationship between the price for potatoes and the demand for potatoes, uh, to you, to the classic, you may well find a downward sloping curve in all places except Ireland. Um, but that that downward sloping curve could not be explained by neoclassical theory. And this is the point. You're given a real-world example where this collusion does occur and, and the firms are benefiting themselves and so on and so forth, and collusion, therefore, is bad in that sense. But there's no uh, – the theory itself does not justify those conclusions because it makes mathematical errors. Well, you know, I don't know whether uh, collusion is – necessarily bad if you took that example where one dominant player and this is where i'm sort of trying to get back to you know australia being too small my, my mm. original hypothesis so say one of those airlines uh is just the you know the dominant airline and says yeah we are going to undercut everybody so we're not going to profit maximize uh per unit sold then that is going to bring the price down for everybody so it's going to it's going to move the curve isn't it yeah, well, this is there's actually some very good work on this done by. Uh, I hope he still talks to me, Paul. Paul, Paul uh, Armrond, a mate of mine. I'm about two years behind in contributing to a joint paper on house prices, uh, but Paul did some brilliant work 
British Telecom, as it happens, mm. uh, about 20 years ago when all the pressure was to, de- to deregulate the British telecommunications market. And he built a multi-agent model of competition, which was much more realistic than the garbage that neoclassicals pump out in their textbooks, uh, which had the idea of a, a market into which you could innovate into a, a product space which uh, where there was a uh, to make it mathematically tractable uh, and, and therefore uh, you could something could simulate. He had each new entrant into the market could choose a point on a, a price space and a quality space where zero was the lowest price and one was the highest price and uh, the way it went yeah, and the other way around for quality. So zero was the high, was the highest quality and one was the lowest quality, the technical reasons why he chose that combination. And then what he showed that over, he, he then had a, a series of simulations where every so many periods an extra competitor could come in, choose some random point on that space, uh, and then you'd see how the market share evolved. Some would fail, some would succeed. There'd be exits and further interest into the market. And what he found with that of a monumental number of simulations, he said the basic rule was uh, competition is two or more firms. In other words, if, if you got a situation where there were two or more firms uh, in the industry, then there was a dramatic drop in price and increase in quality. You didn't need to have the massive small firms that neoclassical theory argues in favour of. So a lack of supermarkets in Australia is not pushing up supermarket prices? No. No, they're they're another issue again because then you come down to economies of scale. Yeah. This is is the big thing for Australia and that's one reason why it is too small a market. Um, You do need a a large number of potential buyers to be able to bring in the level of industrial uh, industrialisation and organisation of your manufacturing process and distribution process to have a low cost of production and therefore a low cost to the consumers. And if you have a small market like Australia, it can only, uh, particularly because, you know, we have, you know, we have 23 million people. That's more than Netherlands, for example, which has 17 million. But they're spread out so much that the logistical cost of getting stuff around is so great that you don't get that, um, that, that, you, you, know, you don't have the same economies of scale. It's also, it's also part of a quite large common market as well. So it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, that's right, that's yeah. right. So yeah, that again. So if we, if if Australia, this is the old fantasy. If Australia had the same population as America or Europe, of course it'd be a totally different place. We might even have Australian car manufacturers. Um, so yeah, the, the the lack of economies of scale is the issue, and therefore the, those lack of those economies of scale, you will get a, a smaller number. Uh, you may you may actually get you know, uh, more competitors in the marketplace, but the markups they've got to put on a higher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the pr- so the price is high as a result, but that's yeah. that is economies of scale. Whether you, but th- that would sort of apply, wouldn't it? If you had ten uh, supermarket providers in Australia, you'd yeah. st- you'd still hit yeah. the, the same issue with economies of scale. I guess it would be price, but prices would be potentially higher if you had ten. Because, exactly. Because, like this, mm. The one thing, like I, I lived in, um, I love living in the heart of cities. I lived in Surrey Hills for some time now in the heart of Amsterdam as well, uh, in Surrey Hills in Sydney, which is a suburb, just for those that don't know, it, just on the just on the outskirts. So literally, it's the first suburb. Uh, if, 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 when you leave Sydney, it's the first suburb you bump into if you're heading south. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, Surrey, and I, I now live in the original Surrey Hills. It doesn't look the same, does it? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, Surrey Hills, <laughs> Australia, has, uh, in where I lived, had about 10 Little mini mini marks, you know the Seven Elevens, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Oh my God! You want to go find something in particular? 
None of them have it. No. Uh, and the price is high on every damn item they sell, and they're all the damn same. Oh, that is interesting, isn't it? Because here in Britain, corner stores are normally actually, there's, you know, the local corner store has been taken over by Tesco Express or one of those chains mm. who actually charge the same price as they do in their supermarket. So actually, corner stores aren't any more expensive here, which is really great. But we've lost yeah. the corner store owner. So bad thing for that, but good thing they were not paying as much. So Yeah, there's, there's, there's trade-offs in both, in both ways. I agree there. But um, the reality it is you often want to have larger uh, outlets. I, I, would, I, would, I would be very happy to sacrifice, let's say, nine of the 11 mini-marts that were in the walking distance of my house in Surrey Hills for two, for two supermarkets that actually had a, a larger range of goods yeah. and therefore also lower prices because of larger turnover. So, And I've actually got that situation in Amsterdam. I can, I can walk. I think I've got two large... One one medium and one large supermarket within less than less than eight hundred meters walking distance here, and the prices are, prices are good and the ranges are excellent. So the, the, it's the fantasy that more 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 firms is better is wrong in a practical sense for many of us, and it's wrong in a theoretical sense as well. And of course, when we t- we talk about marginal costs uh, for production, that's always you know we tend to talk about manufacturing, but these days. Uh, you know, so much is services where, of course, you know, the, uh, so much of it is a high fixed cost, like software, for example, very little marginal cost. So. And you know what? That is so different to manufacturing firms. So totally different. You're being sarcastic now. I, hey, mate, thank you for that. <laughs> but, but, but why? Because, I mean, it's, it, not, it's the standard experience for all firms. Surface firms are an extreme example of that. Um, and this is what neoclassicals themselves, that's why I, I scoff at the claim that they are turning themselves into an empirical discipline because they have ignored empirical data on the cost structure of firms for a I can can I use a, a seven letter word starting with F and ending with G on this podcast? Or that the bit of this Bristol the family show? You, you have done so many times in the past. I don't know why you why you've come back from your holidays. Just, all, all courses. That. Okay, okay. <laughs> they, they just fucking ignore a monumental number of empirical studies, none of which have found that firms have the cost structures they put in their textbooks. And if you look at you look at like things like Greg Manku's textbook, which I'll see if I can bring up on screen while we talk. Right. But if I uh, make a car, that's very that, – there's high costs for each car that's produced. If I've made software, then I've had to write the bloody thing and all my costs have gone into integrating the first bit of that software. All the rest is distribution, which is a relatively small cost, particularly if it's done digitally. Whereas, you know, that's, just- that's exactly the same thing applies to a car. This, this is this is the ironic thing. The fixed costs in building a car factory are enormous. You're mm. talking uh, at, at least forty percent, if not more, of the cost of the car you buy are the, are the per cap per unit fixed costs, and that is what's ignored by neoclassical theory that assumes that fixed costs are tiny. And they also the other thing they assume is that marginal cost rises, not meaning that you've got to pay more for your inputs as you produce more outputs. They presume competitive markets everywhere, so you're buying all your inputs at exactly the same price no matter matter how many inputs you're buying. What they assume is that your production process gets less sufficient because you start off with, uh, let's say you've got 10 machines uh, which each need 10 workers to work at maximum efficiency and you've got one worker uh, when you start off with production. And so what you do is you have the one worker wait for it, mate, running around making sure all 10 10 machines are operating. And then you get a second and say the two run between five each. And then you get three and four and five. And finally, you've got 10, each of them 
running, operating one machine at very low efficiency because it takes 10 workers to make the machine work at a maximum efficiency. Right. Then ultimately you get to having 100 workers. Well, at that point, you've got 10 workers per machine. You're getting maximum efficiency. If you want to increase output beyond that point, you've got to have, say, 12 or 14 workers per per machine. Mm. Uh, it takes you past the point of maximum efficiency within the machine, but produces more output. This is a load of cod swallop. This is <laughs> nonsense, okay? That is not at all how factories operate. So well, back to my yep. factories now, of course, are getting machines operating the machines as well. Exactly, so, exactly yeah. the other story as well. But the, when, when in a genuine fact, if you did have ten machines, each of which needed ten workers to operate at maximum efficiency, you would not operate until you had seven or eight workers, let's say. But you once you once you had, if you had just ten workers and ten machines in the factory, you'd use one machine and ignore the other nine. Then when you had twenty, you'd put the second machine on, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, until you get out to an Let's say it's had nine of the ten machines now fully occupied. Uh, you have one still laying idle. You're getting maximum efficiency out of each of those nine machines, and you've already held a board meeting to decide to add, buy another three machines or produce another factory containing another four or five machines for anticipated growth. Yeah. Your costs do not rise. In fact, the way that well, factories you'd are designed, they fall. Sh- you'd have a short-term reduction, wouldn't you, in, in, in your profit as you turned each machine on until it reached full capacity. You, you'd, go, you'd go through a step process as, as you added Yeah, a bit of a step process. But, but again, when you look at, I mean, if you ever ever worked in a, this is one of the advantages of part-time jobs when I was at university, I worked on production lines um, in both a very small factory making, um, oh, what do you call them, wind vanes and stuff like that uh, for, for, for roofs and another large factory making wine. And what would happen is, and this, this is the story on a, on a Fortis production line, as you went ramped up production, you'd increase the speed of the production line and you'd hire more workers to handle the increased speed of the production line. Um, and then also you'd have idle production lines which came on tune when you had large levels of seasonal demand, which, of course, for, for most goods, most retailers applies during Christmas. About 30% of the profit of retail outlets in particular occur through Christmas, and, of course, that affects factory orders as well. So all this stuff means that you're adjusting the speed of the machines and the number of machines in operation. You are not using what the neoclassicals call a fixed amount of fixed capital. You're using a variable amount of fixed capital, and the more of it you're using as you approach the design capacity of the factory, the lower your cost per unit are. That's the opposite of what neoclassical theory teaches. And what about the cost of resources, though? That, that if you are using, if you're building cars, then you're using steel, for example, mm. um, or you, you know, you, or whatever the the, the the raw materials you're using. Those raw materials are limited in supply. So the more, if you started using more and more and more of them um, at a at a macro level the cost of those resources is going to go up, isn't it? So that is going to impact your your fixed costs, you don't, your variable costs, sorry. You don't have that when you're, you're working in a service industry or producing software and the like. Well, that's 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 a difference. But that, that's like, for example, you know, small, small. It's smaller, you, you, you will. I mean, for example, there's, there's, this factor is going both way there. If you're, a, if you're a factory making, buying a large proportion of the output of a particular mine, because we are talking like you know, raw material inputs here now, um, you're going to make a bulk order. You're going to lock down contracts over time and you're going to get a discount on the markup that the mine puts on that output as a result. So at a competitive level, the bigger you are, the lower the price you're going to pay. However, at the same time at the market level, if you've got such a level of demand, it's driving up the spot price, spot price of oil 
or coal or iron ore, et cetera, et cetera, then you've got to face that over time rising market price and that'll be factored into a future contract. So that's, that's the real world. And that's why we should be having students learning in the textbooks instead of the utter garbage, childish garbage that you get put into books like ManQ. Now, I'm going to give you a reading from the book of ManQ, uh, 2004 edition. This is figure four uh, in, in the slides that are sent with these textbooks. And a major reason why academics use them, by the way, is because they're too effing lazy to do their own slides. Uh, so when you're looking at this slide, it's figure four, and it shows the total cost curve uh, of thirsty thelmas Total thirsty thelmas. You've, you've shopped at thirsty thelmas, haven't you? No, don't even. Oh, know. oh, D- mate, even... oh, it's it's a worldwide monopoly. It's a well well, well known competitive firm. Well, actually, right. it's not well known, but anyway. okay. And the output of, of, <laughs> of uh, thirsty thelmas is glasses of lemonade per hour. Right. Okay. Mm. And it starts at uh, one one glass of lemonade per hour costs three dollars. No, zero. The the, the 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 fixed cost is three dollars. Okay, so if you're reducing zero outputs, then the fixed cost is three dollars to the total firm. If you produce one, then you get a rise to a total cost of about three fifteen, from what I can see here. And by the time you have ten glasses of lemonade per hour, your costs have risen to fifteen dollars. Oh my God, this is a fairy story. It's not a real bloody firm. Mm. That's how he drives. He drives his rising marginal cost. And he has falling, the next slide, Thirsty Thelma's average cost and marginal cost curves. You have falling average fixed cost, but fixed cost is trivial compared to average variable costs. And this is the vision they have of the real world. It is not the real world at all. Well, in the real world, getting back to you know, the point I made earlier, I think most companies don't really care. I mean, obviously, they care about their marginal cost. They, they care about you know how much profit per, per unit they sell. But really, it's EBIT is the bottom line. It's share of wallet. So if you're coming to buy something, they want you to buy two things. They don't care if the margin on each one is less because they've given a discount to get you to buy two. They want you to buy two because they want more money coming in, basically. Yeah, well, this is all the relationship stuff as part of an actual firm. Yeah. And uh, one of the great ironies, this is, this is, uh, it's lovely seeing neoclassical score own goals, basically because they can't score real ones, but they're damn good at producing scoring own goals. And my favourite own goal by a neoclassical economist of not quite of all time, but it's near enough, is uh, Alan Blinder. Who wrote? Uh, who was a Alan Blind is a leading neoclassical. He was a deputy president of the American Economic Association. He was the deputy governor of a Federal Reserve uh, board at some point. Um, so he's top notch mainstream. From what I can tell, actually, not a bad bloke either. Uh, but Blinder uh, comes from the new, what's called the New Keynesian school, and in the New Keynesians believe that uh, price adjustments are sticky. They take a while to occur. So he uh, did some research into finding out why house prices are sticky. And as part of it, he queried firms about their cost structure. And the cost structure that he found was completely different to what neoclassical theory teaches, including fixed costs being a major proportion of, uh, of, of, of the price of, a, of a, a commodity and marginal costs being constant or falling for the vast majority of firms. Now, they don't put that in their textbooks because if they did, their textbooks would fall apart. All right, back to the point then. Per- perfect competition and monopolies will reach the same price because they actually see the same demand curve. That is the rutting thinking that uh, I've got to get to, to understand that. Yeah, my my, <laughs> my my point was in relation to Australia that uh, that competition was, uh, wasn't strong enough 
which is why people were paying more for stuff. So you're sort of saying, well, you agree with me. Yeah, yeah, it's not a contradictory. And so Peter, uh, Peter Y, um, it, 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 it uh, Phil's attitude towards monopoly has some real, real world legs to it. Um, but what it comes down to is, is a combination of two things. The, the, um, the economies of scale we were talking about, and therefore also the lack of competitive pressure to reduce your margins. Yeah. Because what can happen, and you know, we've seen this with uh, large firms on occasions in the past, is that with no um, uh, with no major competitors, then you put up as high a markup as you can. And but with with a set of competitors, and you also don't have to innovate. But with competitors, you're yeah. going to have a lower markup, and you will be forced to innovate. And that's why. But it, it all it yeah. takes. Well, he, 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 he took that. He took that point on board because I did say that last time that yeah. Uh, yeah. dominating a sector, large companies dominating a sector, is going to reduce innovation. To which Peter Y points out that Australia has innovative sectors, uh, including some in biotech, and of course he says those great films and TV series. I wonder, I'm not sure whether he's being, oh, was was he being sarcastic that, on that one or not. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> Skippy, neighbours, I'm not so sure. I did mention Skippy, yes, indeed, that's true. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, anyway, let me see. But, look, and and, you know, also innovation in old, you know, there's a difference, isn't there, between being innovative in new industries. So he's saying, yes, you know, great on biotech. So maybe, uh, you know, Australia's got in there first because of uh, the education sector, perhaps. So new industries where there's no competition, there's room for innovation in old industries. Let's take Australian retail, for example. Hardly a progressive retail scene in Australia. When you come and see how it's done in Europe and the United States, uh, there wasn't any anything progressive until Amazon arrived, uh, a foreign company. Uh, you know, Australia was very slow to pick up on, on, on online shopping. So there's, you know, different types of innovation, whether you're talking about new industries or old industries, isn't there? Yeah, that's also Australian. Equally, one other thing that uh, monopolies can do, and I've had personal experience of this, uh, is shut down by, by by products produced by competitors to shut them down. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That, that, that certainly like a large part of Microsoft has been that. And also um, having a, a large firm can also mean that innovative uh, small firms get squeezed out. So like I was a, I, I made my a living for a while as a database programmer. And I also was a software reviewer for a major computing magazine. So I got to uh, read uh, and use an enormous number of, um, of software packages, and I knew what the best database were. And it certainly wasn't Excel, which came along actually late, late in the scene. Mm. Uh, it was a package called Advanced Revelation, another one called Zim. Uh, now, when Microsoft, produced, Microsoft was late to the database market, so what it did was it bought a rival product called Access. Uh, then it offered Access as part of the Microsoft Office suite. And suddenly uh, the demand for, for databases disappeared for the other firms, even though Access was shit to use. Uh, people got it for free. People like, pardon me, doing, being, being, I'm really being, I'm being totally Australian today, getting free shit. They like getting free shit. So they got, a, 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 they got access with a database. Nobody uses it because it's pretty cruddy. Uh, but bang, all the other small, brilliant firms disappeared because they lost market share. Yeah. So, yes, there are definitely uh, so negative d- points. Sir. So doesn't that, it's not an example of why the idea of perfect competition in itself is a bit of a nonsense because, uh, you know, First of all, some companies are going to get in there first. They're going to establish those economies of scale that others can't match. Uh, and they are going to behave in, you know, in just the way you've described. They're going to buy out and sell off or they're going to undercut. They're going to do underhand stuff to try and maintain that competition until someone, yeah. until someone else comes along and produces something which is a little bit better, but a little bit different. And then they sort of have the f- 
first mover advantage. This idea that we've got perfect competition at any point in time for any length of time is just, an, you know, it's like, it's like the equilibrium argument that you're so against, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and that's the point of it. We've got, well, there are, there are reasons to be critical of monopolies. There are reasons to think about, um, uh, you know, large number of firms in industry, uh, but nothing like the number that neoclassicals argue for and no, nowhere near as automatic. And the, the model of perfect competition versus the model of monopoly actually, it's, a, is factually contradictory. They do not have rising marginal cost curves. So you can't use that to begin with. Uh, and it uh, diverts the argument about what, what is the bad thing about a monopoly. And we get regulators enforcing this stuff which is a waste of bloody time yeah yeah absolutely um, we, we've talked about that in the past as well they need to change their thinking all right very good uh we'll leave it for there for now uh apologies for all the swear words everybody but he has <laughs> just got back from australia so you know what you expect australians will be going nothing wrong with that at all and that was uh, that was hilarious wasn't it you, you and i first did a, a radio show in the uk it was my first gig on a new radio station and you said shit in the middle of it <laughs> And and the, and do you know what the producer blanked it out and then came to me afterwards and said you know you've got to stop him saying stuff like that and I said I didn't even notice because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking to you for too long anyway Indeed. we'll leave it there for now look I want, we want to obviously uh, there's a couple of elephants in the room that we need to talk about over the next few weeks one is uh, returning to Brexit and um, we haven't really talked about that a great deal and you and I have different views but I think somewhere in the middle we agree so we'll do that next time though uh, housing and housing affordability we'll talk about that so we'll see you then. Okay, mate. And before we go, uh, a few people have been asking about being able to listen to these podcasts on their preferred podcast player, like on iTunes or uh, Google Play or stuff like that. Uh, of course, we can't make them publicly available on those platforms because uh, it's a it's a paid for podcast. Uh, but what you can do if you are a Patreon subscriber, uh, you'll see there's an audio RSS link, and that provides a private link uh, which you can then use, copy it in. So if you can import an RSS feed into your player, then you only need to do this once then you just need to set this up as a as one of your favorite programs and type in the rss address manually and you'll get an rss feed that is specific to you as a subscriber so so long as you keep on paying and so long as you're a subscriber uh, that link will work uh, so hopefully that makes sense look if not ask us the question and we'll try and sort it out for you meanwhile you can ask questions that you'd like to be featured on the podcast as well get in touch with us through the various channels either from patreon or email me phil at loudmouthcoms.com and uh, we'll try and accommodate what it is you'd like us to cover that's it for now i'm phil dobby with steve keen thanks for listening we'll see you next time 